Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Thank you, Pastor Chris. I am excited to be able to bring week three of today of this series that we have been in the last few weeks called To the Church. And uh, it's been a great series so far. We've been walking through these seven letters uh, in Revelation and being able just to kind of dive into them and see how those things that were spoken to the church then are also still spoken to us today. And so I'm very excited uh, about this. So if you have your uh, Version app, you've got your Bible, you've got your Coastal app, go ahead and bring up, or your Bible, bring up Revelation 2. And that's where we're going to be at, where we're going to look at. And so go ahead and get there. Uh, but here's what I want us to kind of, as we dive into this, I want us to be thinking about. Throughout history, the church has struggled to realize something, that its greatest dangers are almost never from outside of the walls, but almost always from within, from within inside the church. Our greatest threats to spiritual health and life are not opposition, they're not even uh, persecution from you know, unbelieving, evil, and wicked men that are energized by Satan. Uh, it's not any of that. But it's rather, it's when we allow into our community of faith spiritual Trojan horses that will sow seeds of destruction if given the opportunity. This seed that is sown, this poison, is called compromise. And it's compromise of the truth. It's the compromise of God's word. Francis Schaeffer, who is a pastor and theologian from years ago, says this, truth always carries confrontation. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation, nevertheless, if our reflex action is always accommodation or compromise of the centrality of the truth involved, there is something wrong. Truth always demands confrontation. When people are confronted with truth, they want to uh, you know, argue about it, they want to debate it, they want to uh, you know, have this confrontation, but we need to do it out of love. If our simple reflex action in these moments is to be accommodating or to compromise the central truth of the Bible, then there's something wrong. There's something that we need to take hold of and realize and understand. See, something is seriously wrong when Christians, we begin to compromise truth to accommodate the culture and the world in which we live. This compromise can be a theological issue. It can be a moral issue. For a church in Pergamum that we're gonna look at today, it was both. In fact, their situation was so awful that Christ himself says in 2.16, we'll hear, see here in just a moment, that if they do not repent, that he would come against them quickly and fight them. King Jesus would fight his church over the compromising of truth. Now, if compromising truth is that serious to God, then maybe it should be to us as well. And I think that's something that we need to take hold of and understand. Now, as we dive into the church of Pergamum, Pergamum, just so you know a little bit about this, uh, this place, Pergamum was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was considered to be the most distinguished and the most intellectual city in Asia at the time. It was actually a city that was soaked in pagan religion. It contained an altar to Zeus. It contained temples to several different Greek gods. And it actually contained three temples to worship the current emperor, which had never been done before until this time. So let's set the stage as we dive into Re Revelation 2. The church in Pergamum had faced serious opposition from outside its walls, but her greatest vulnerability was the compromising of truth within its walls, just like it is for all churches today. So if you would look with me in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, and it says this, it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
Now, Revelation and what we've learned about the last few weeks, this is Jesus that is uh, telling John, and he's dictating to John what to write down. And right here in this letter, he's telling him, he's saying, this is what you need to write. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So making this statement that this is a warning from Jesus who has God's word. This sword, this two-edged sword is God's word. It is, it is the Bible. It is scripture. And he's saying, this is me, and I'm going to make this statement. What we can learn from this right here is that the word of God is the sword that we should fear and revere. That the word of God is a sword we should fear and be worried about what it's capable of doing, but also that we should revere in the fact that this is the word of God. It is the living truth, the living spoken words of God as we read through it and as we study it. This sword, this word of God is used to remove deception from truth and also to separate the guilty from the innocent. Christ determines our righteousness and our salvation through what God's word says. What we are to do is to abide by God's word and to hold completely to its teachings. Hold completely to it. The the whole thing, not just bits and pieces, but the whole thing. And one of the character traits of Jesus that we so often don't want to talk about is judgment. Is that he judges us and he judges us by the words in this book. It's God's word. So the judgment of Jesus is true, but it's also thorough. It's true and it's thorough. It covers a multitude of things, and it is absolute truth. You see, his word is true, and it is trustworthy. It's infallible, and it's inerrant. I mean, it cannot be proven wrong. It is without error. Everything in here is in here because it's supposed to be, and the things that aren't in here aren't in there because they're not supposed to be. His word is authoritative, and it is certain, meaning it is powerful, and it is specific. Hebrews 4.12 actually says, For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God, these words are living and they are active. They are sharper than any two-edged sword in the way that they pierce into our soul, the way that they pierce into us, that they, they have this, this, where they penetrate into our heart and they transform us. They, they come, it comes in and it changes us. It makes us to become more like Christ. This sword, it's not dull. It cuts quickly, it cuts cleanly. It both hurts and it heals. But it also cuts and it cures, it restores us. Not only does it divide lies from truth, but it helps to bring those that have fallen into believing of the lies to come back to the truth. It possesses absolute authority, it possesses decisive discernment, but it also is both an instrument of life and of death. And we need to keep that in mind, that life and death is dictated by the words of this book, and that we need to hold fast to it, that we need to stay to it, that we need to know it, that we need to read it, that we need to understand it, and to ultimately realize that Jesus is judging us based off of what this book says, where our sin falls, where our joy, where our temptations come from, the things that we get into and the things, and, and where we focus our heart and where the things, that, where is our heart, where, who is it with and who does it lie with? And he looks at us and he evaluates us based off of these words. So let's go on. Revelation 2, 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. These words right here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You see, Jesus, he, he knows where we are. That this earth, that this world, that this is where Satan's throne is. And he says, I know where it's at. And even though Satan rules, you haven't given in. Even though Satan rules, you haven't given in. You did not deny my faith, even when your, your brother in Christ, Antipas, faithful witness, was killed. 
what he's telling this church. And what we need to realize is that we are to remain faithful, that we are to remain faithful because even though Satan rules in this place, we cannot give in. Which leads to the second thing that you should know today, and that's that living authentically reveals what you actually think about Jesus. The way that you live authentically in your faith reveals what you actually think about Jesus. Actually, is he, is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he both? What, what is he to me? And the way that you live your life authentically in your faith reveals what you actually think about him. What happens when a church and the people in the church make compromises? We begin to see, see things like broken homes, broken marriages. We see, uh, you know, at times a, a struggle in relationships. We had see a, a distortion or uh, some lies in our theology. We also see some ways that we live a lifestyle that doesn't glorify God. And then when we begin to compromise in truth, we begin to have a greater misunderstanding of scripture. So we need to not compromise the truth of God's word. So with all of these things at risk and possible, this church at Pergamum is actually praised for its faithfulness. It says, you've been faithful. Even when things got tough, even when people were being killed for the, the things that they believe in, the people that were around you were facing this, this persecution, you have continued to remain faithful because you didn't compromise. Authentic faith actually happens where we live and it happens in our witness. The way that we live out our life and live out our faith in our life, it does happen in the place that we live, in our neighborhood, in our schools, in our workplace, in our families, but also in our witness because of the way that we give our testimony and the way that we share our testimony with the people that we meet. And the way that we handle arguments and discussion and the way that we handle confrontation and the way that we handle when something goes wrong or when something goes great, who gets the glory or who do we turn to in those tough times? You see, God knows where we live. God knows right where we live. He knows where we are at right now. And he knows that Satan's throne is here and he knows who has dominion here and he knows everything about what Satan is trying to do on this earth, but he is not worried because he's God. The entire book of Revelation is about how the battle and the war has already been won. We need to trust in that. We need to rely on the fact that God is the one that's in supreme control. And while Satan has his time, his days here on earth when he is ruling over us and he has this power over us to tempt us into sin and to bring us out of the light and into the darkness of sin and what he wants to see happen, that we can know and that we can trust that there is a God that loves us, that created us, that knows us, and he wants to bring us into his fold. He wants to bring us into a relationship with him. And so God knows this and he's not worried. And in a culture that, culture that is so inhospitable to Christianity, opposition and persecution can make living for Christ extremely difficult right now. And not just now, but for thousands of years. It's been difficult because we are persecuted. We are opposed when we have a, a belief and a faith and a, a belief system that is dependent on this book that is the words of God. And how we live that out authentically in our life shows what we actually think about him. You see, in Pergamum, they had been overrun by a love of country and king. Love of country, love of emperor, it had kind of become this nationalistic thought and that it had now crossed into the line for them of being idolatry and worship where they were moving away from the things of God to move towards the things of, of king and country in their life. And they began to have this idolatrous relationship with those things and they were pursuing after those and not what God would say, not God's truth. Jesus praised these Christians because they were faithful in their confession that Christ is Lord in this kingdom that is run by Satan. They continued to remain faithful. They continued to proclaim that, that Christ is Lord, no matter who is sitting on the throne of, of this earth, that Christ is Lord. He's in control. He is the one that I'm gonna worship. 
He's the one I'm going to give my love to. He's the one I'm going to give my heart to. Now, Antipas, we see here, this faithful witness, was actually killed by being a faithful witness. He was killed for being a Christian, a witness to the testimony of who Jesus is. And I want you to realize and know this and understand. We may not see this right now in our country in this way, but right now in this world, somewhere Christians right now are dying for Jesus. They're dying. They're being imprisoned. They're being killed. They're being tortured and raped and persecuted. And the people around them are remaining faithful because they know and they trust and they have faith in the God that created them and in the God of this word. Do we have that kind of faith today here in America where maybe we don't face persecution in that way? And these people are facing death and they're facing punishment and all of these things. And so many of us right now, we're worried somebody might get mad at us or somebody might not be our friend anymore or heaven forbid, block us on Facebook. Like we are worried about those kinds of things. I'm like, oh, I'm getting persecuted, I got blocked. No, like we need to be able to say, you know what? I trust in God and I am okay to, uh, you know, say and proclaim what God's word says because I know it is truth and I have faith in it. That's what we're seeing here is that these individuals of the church of Pergamon were facing this opposition. They were facing this persecution. So let's go on. Let's let's keep reading here. uh, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. It says, but I have a few things against you. So he's, he's commended them, but now he's condemning them. He says, but I have a few things against you. You're doing fine, but I do have this, this, this couple things. You have some there, some there in the church, who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, you're doing fine. He says, you are doing well, you have remained faithful, but... You do have a few. You do have some within the church. As I, as I opened with uh, today, you have some that are kind of these, these Trojan horses. They're coming in to compromise the truth because they are holding to the teaching of Balaam and they're holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And it talks about them putting up a stumbling block before those who, are follow, who follow God and who follow Christ. And he's saying, you even have these people that are putting up this, this teaching that they might eat food that is sacrificed to idols or practice sexual immorality. Just giving an example of a few of these things. So the third thing that we can realize today, living your truth will lead to you losing your soul. Living your truth will lead to you losing your soul. We are to live God's truth because that is the only truth that matters. And that's what he's telling them here. You see, we can't compromise morality. We also can't compromise theology, but we can't compromise morality in the way that he's telling them that you have people in, in your community of faith that are starting to lean and starting to have the hold of the teachings of Balaam and to the Nicolaitans. And they're starting to put up stumbling blocks for other believers, but they're also doing these things like eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. And we see those things as an example. And first off, every one of us in this room, we're like, man, I don't sacrifice food to idols. We don't sacrifice food to idols. That's kind of weird, right? Well, let's back up about three weeks. Super Bowl party. What kind of food do you have to have at a Super Bowl party, even when you don't care what the teams are or that Tom Brady's winning his 98th championship? I'm not bitter about that. I'm just saying, like, we have to have, oh, man, we got, I got to have nachos. I got to have wings. I got to have this. Well, let's bring it a little closer to home. This is college football territory. What about those that will tailgate for 10 or 12 hours at a, in a parking lot for a team of college kids playing football? And I love football. But sometimes those things have become our God, they become our idol, and we begin to worship them. You see, these are just some examples that that Jesus is putting into this letter. But when you read into more of the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, you'll realize that there's a lot of other things that are covered as well. 
Things like drunkenness. Things like affairs, sexual immorality. Things like possessing more things and more stuff. All of these things are just placebos to soothe pain that we feel, to fill some gap in our heart that is ultimately meant to be filled by God, but we are not filling it with God, we're filling it with all these other things, these actions. That we begin to struggle and we begin to give in to sin and temptation because we think it's ultimately going to make us feel better. But what these things really are is rebellion to God. And you might, you know, you might be sitting thinking, you know, but, you know, Pastor Scott, you know, I only get drunk when Clemson wins the national championship. And that's only like every other year, you know, uh, you know, or, but, you know, or I might only get drunk when Carolina wins a football game. And that's like only every other year. And like, I'm sorry, Pastor Chris made me put that one in there. Uh, you're like, no, <laughs> like, you look like, but I only do it on these times and it's only with friends and it's only for fun. And, you know, I don't drive when I do it and, all, you know, all those things. But like the, the idea is this, is that we have these things that will pull us further and further away from God, like being drunk and like sexual immorality and all this other stuff. And so when it comes to relationships for single adults, Listen to this, when you have a relationship with somebody and you're like, well, you know, we're, we're having sex because you know, like, I gotta test drive the car, you know, before I buy it, you know, whatever the, the saying is, and you're like, I gotta make sure we're compatible. And it's like, no, God has set up a certain boundary that that happens within the, the, the guidelines and the guardrails of marriage between a man and a woman. And he says, this is how it has to happen. Everything else will fall short. Everything else won't match up. The pain will not be soothed in those moments when that you are committing these sexual acts of immorality. I think for us to realize is this, is that these are things that we use, these are methods to ultimately the, the end of feeling better about ourselves, to living out our truth because it makes us feel better or we think it does. It may in, in the moment, but ultimately then we have to go to, to the next party or the next relationship, the next one night stand. But what we can see here is that morality is based upon a standard of truth, and that standard is set by God and Him alone. That's the only truth that matters. All things, thoughts, beliefs, actions, lifestyles, these things must be lined up with His truth, or they are wrong. It's not living our truth, we have to live His truth, which is why we must not compromise our theology either, just like our morality. You see, theology is what we think about God. Every one of us has a theology in what we think about God. What I want to ask you is this, is your theology of what you think about God based off scripture or what you want it to be or what somebody else has told you it should be? The only thing that should matter is if it's based off of scripture. So many of us, we want to claim Jesus as our savior, but we don't want to trust in his truth as Lord. We like the part of the Bible where it tells us we get to go to heaven for all eternity in this perfect place, we don't like the part where it tells us to not be drunk, not to give in to sexual immorality, not to live a life of, of lust and not to, to live a life of all these other things that we would like to, to participate in or be a part of. But we have to take the whole thing. And when it comes to living your truth, we have to realize that our truth is, is not truth if we're just making it up to fit our own agenda and our own desires. I can't stand the, the, the phrases, you do you, or you be you, or you live your truth. Like those things, like they bother me. When I hear somebody, I'm like, oh, like it's not my truth, right? It's not my, let me tell you this. If I lived my truth, the more I drink sweet tea, the more weight I would lose. 
the more chicken wings I ate, the more jacked I would get, right? The more sports and TV I watched, the more wisdom I would have and the better my family dynamic would be. That's my truth, but I know it's wrong, right? We, we can have these things and these ideas and the, like, I wanna do this because I know it makes me feel good and oh, it's not hurting anybody else. It doesn't make it true. Does God's word say it's okay? Does God's word say we should do it or not do it? That's what we need to line up with. If truth is decided but what makes you feel good or desire, then it's not truth. It has to match up with his. So how do we correct this mindset? 2, 16 says, therefore, repent. Pretty simple. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, he tells us to repent, to to change direction, to change our course of action. If we are pursuing these things away from the world, we need to turn back towards him. Repentance is about changing course and about changing our path, which leads to the fourth thing that you should know today, and that's the distortion of truth in your life will lead to the destruction of trust in your Savior. When you begin to distort truth in your life, you will begin to destroy the relationship and the connection and the trust you have in your Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot keep distorting truth. So Christ warns us right here. He says, repent. This thing's been going on. You have people in your, in your fold that have been going to these different teachings and trying to bring them into the, the community of faith. You need to repent. And so he warns us of this. Repentance is about changing direction. It's about returning to God. It's about going in one direction, making a complete 180, turning the other direction and going in that way. When we're going after the things of this world and seeking after the things that pleasure us and the the things that fulfill our desires and what we want to hear and see, and we're going in that direction, we have to turn around completely and go in the opposite direction back towards God and to seek after him with everything that we have, to pursue after him with our whole heart. So how best do we repent and change direction? There's a few things that we can do. We can trust in the truth. Trust in it. The truth, that realize that the only absolute truth is God's word. It's the only one. It's the only thing that's absolute truth. We can depend on our discipline to do the hard things to see the right results, to be disciplined in the way that we live our life, in the way that we study and practice God's word and apply it to our life. But also we can create some consistency, consistency in the small things, to to make the main things the plain things and the plain things are the main things, right? Like to have these simple things to create some consistency and to say, you know what, I'm gonna be consistent in the fact that I believe in God's word that gets me into heaven, but I also believe in God's word that tells me I shouldn't live like this, but should live like this. We'd be consistent in what we believe in the faith that we have. Repentance is about grieving our wondering hearts that have led us astray from our one true love, and that's Jesus. Pastor Chris preached on that just a few weeks ago. So he warns us to repent, but he also warns us right here of rejection. Christ will reject you if you do not repent and pursue truth. Reject you. Are you willing to face God as an opponent? Are you willing to compromise his his truth for uh, some friendship, a a relationship, money, uh, a job, some status? Are you willing to be rejected by God for the things that this world has to offer? Are you willing to go into battle against God himself because you have a desire to do something that is maybe not what his word says? That's what we need to evaluate. That's what we need to be looking at and understand is that we can't compromise on this, that he will reject us. And he warns us of this rejection. He says, I will come to you and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He will attack. To take God on is not something I'm willing to do. 
So I can't compromise the truth. Do I have my moments? Yes, we all do. We all have our moments where we give into temptation, where we begin to sin, or maybe we begin to try to kind of bend the truth or maybe ignore it just a little bit because, well, well, maybe not. And we all have these moments. But we need to completely and continually follow after Jesus and pursue after him with everything that we have, not compromising on the truth of his word. See, a crack can compromise a cornerstone of a building. And it may seem like a small thing, but later on can cause a lot of damage. Just like in your faith, a crack in your faith, when you give into something and you give into some truth, and you begin to bend, you begin to flex just a little bit, can do the same thing. You will struggle to trust Jesus when you distort the truth. So how does this all play out? What does this begin to look like? Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What he's saying right here is, everyone listen up. He who has an ear, let him hear. Everyone listen right here. Hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says this, to the one who conquers, I'll give him some hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, unless you've maybe really read into this passage or really studied this and you're like, okay, manna, I've heard of that. Uh, You know, a white stone, a new name. Like, what what is this? What's being said right here? Well, what he's saying is if you're gonna listen to the Spirit, letter A, Christ will reassure you. He'll reassure you. You see, manna was the food that was provided to the Israelites during the Exodus in the Old Testament. We read about that, that God provided food, a physical substance, a physical nourishment for those Israelites as they were wandering. But here, what it is speaking of is the spiritual food needed for eternal nourishment, the hidden manna. It's spiritual food for the journey to nourish us on our spiritual journey. He is going to reassure us with this. Jesus will supply you with what you need for this journey, and he will provide nourishment for your soul. He's gonna reassure you, he's gonna support you, he's gonna provide for you in that. So I'll give that to those who repent, who have conquered the, the, the compromising of truth and who are you know, straying away from the lies and pursuing after me. But he also says, if you listen to the Spirit, that be, Christ will receive you. He'll receive you. It says here that he'll give you a white stone. Now, a white stone, we're kind of like, what does, what does this mean? Well, over the hundreds and thousands of years, uh, you know, there's been a, a stone that is used in a, a, in a kind of like a court system. Uh, one side would be white, one side would be black, white meaning innocent, black meaning guilty. And so when they would have this person that would be standing in front on trial, uh, the people would throw in kind of their, their verdict. And they would, you know, the white stone, oh, he's innocent. The black stone, oh, he's guilty. And they would put it out on the table. What he's saying here is, I will give you this white stone. This is a stone of acquittal. It's versus the stone of, 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 of a black stone of, of guilt. He's saying, I'm going to give you this stone of acquittal, meaning you are free. This statement points to our acceptance and our victory that is in Christ. If you will overcome the lies of this world and stick to the truth of my word, you will be set free. You will experience victory. You will experience freedom. And he's giving that to us and he's providing that to us in this spot as he's saying this. He gives us this white stone that can never be taken away. Our salvation is secure in Jesus. No one can remove that from us. We can have every possession that we have. We can have every job taken away. We can have every relationship. We can have a marriage, uh, kids, family, friends, 
all this stuff can be taken away from, our life can be taken away from us, our physical life, but our salvation, our eternal salvation that is found in Jesus Christ by what he did on the cross can never be taken away. We should understand that. That we should realize and be secure in the salvation that we have because it has been secured for us. But he also says this, that if you would listen to the spirit, Christ will recognize you. He will reassure you, he will uh, receive you, but he will also recognize you. He will know you and know who you are. It says that he will give a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This new name, this is the receiving of God's holy name on our soul. That is the name of Jesus that has been written on our heart when we place our faith and our trust in who Jesus Christ is. It's been given to us. And this, uh, this whole little section right here, these phrasing, it points to this end time supper, this end time feast that is going to take place in which we will have intimate fellowship with the risen Lord. That sounds awesome. That's something I wanna be a part of. That I receive this name, that I receive this, this ticket, this, this key into this, uh, into this banquet, into this feast to be with Jesus for all eternity. That we will be recognized. We are on the guest list and we are allowed to come in and to feast with him. And to have this time of joy and fellowship in a perfect place for all eternity. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds a lot better than anything this world has to offer for the temporary amount of time that we are here. Church, we gotta quit running from the, the, the truth of God's word and we have to run away from the lies of this world to pursue after God with everything that we have, to seek after him, to not begin to bend and stretch and flex the truth so that it fits us in what we want to see happen and what we wanna be a part of, what we wanna see play out in our life. Well, this makes me feel good, so it should be right. Well, does it line up with what God's word says? Sometimes these kinds of things can be a convicting moment for us to realize, man, I've got some things in my life that I've been doing because I want to do them or because my desire is to do them. And they're really not glorifying to God in general as well, but also they're not living up to what God's word and God's standard is of his truth that plays out in scripture. So maybe we need to repent because we don't want to go to war against God. But we want to be able to be invited into the feast the banquet for all eternity to be with him. Christ wants to enter into this intimate relationship with us, to be united with him for all eternity, and he's offering the key. How do we experience this? It's simple. You believe and you repent. See, becoming somebody that is a Christ follower for turning your life over to Jesus and surrendering your heart to him, it's as simple as believing that Jesus is who he says that he is that he died on the cross, that he resurrected from the cross after that death three days later, that he gave us life in that moment, that he gave us forgiveness of our sins and the the lies of this world and the, the ruler of this world and Satan, that we've been able to be set free from him. He is offering that to each and every one of us. And what we have to do is simply believe it and repent of the sin that's in our life, to change direction and quit pursuing after the things of this world and to pursue after the things of God. If that's something that you would want today, let us know. You can call out to God as simple right now in believing in him, confessing that to him, but repenting of your sin that's in your life so that he can bring you into the fold, into the community, into the family of faith, and you can experience everything he has to offer, which includes this banquet, this feast for all eternity with him. So if you would, would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray.
Father God, I want you to know right now, Lord, that we come to you today thankful for your word, thankful for how it speaks to each one of us. God, I pray right now that you're convicting not only myself, but all of us in this room, all of us that are watching online. God, you would convict us about the things in our life that we have allowed to take over and to consume us, the things in our life that we have begun to put into position of where we feel like they should be true because they fulfill a desire or a need or a want of ours. But God, that we would be convicted of that and in this moment, Lord, we would call out to you and we would repent. Father, that we could get back on track to experiencing the truth that you have to offer. God, for those that are in this room that have never placed their faith and trust in you, I want them to know right now, Lord, that you love them, that you created them, that you know everything about them, and that you want them to experience life to its fullest, that it only comes through a saving relationship through your son, Jesus Christ. And that, God, it doesn't matter what their past is. It doesn't matter what they're going through and what they're experiencing and sin and temptation that they're in right now. But what matters is that they would repent of it and they would believe that you are who you say you are. And, Father, they would humbly surrender their life to you. That this would be a moment, this would be a time of change, a time of repentance where they would quit pursuing after the world and pursue back towards you. That you're inviting them in. You're inviting them home, inviting them into a relationship with you for all eternity. Father, that's my hope and that's my prayer for all of us that we would all look to repent, to get back online and to quit compromising the truth of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.